Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia podcast. This is your host Charlotte Stiadi and today we will be talking about public diplomacy between Indonesia and Australia. It seems odd to talk about matters to do with international relations at this time of pandemic when borders between countries are mostly closed and the movement of people are restricted. On the other hand, during these times of heightened xenophobia, perhaps it is all the more important to be optimistic and to remember the importance of people-to-people relationships that form the basis of any good diplomatic relations. Indonesia and Australia have had a relationship that stretched over many decades and even centuries. The relationship between the two countries has not always been smooth, but the people of Australia and Indonesia have mostly supported each other during times of crises. For instance, the recently published book Anton and Me, published by the Australia-Indonesia Association, tells of the love story of Anton Maramis, an Indonesian sailor and independence fighter, and Charlotte Maramis, an Australian woman who became his wife during World War II. More than just a love story, the book also reveals stories of how ordinary Australians in wartime Sydney supported the Indonesian struggle for independence. Such stories serve as a reminder of the importance of people-to-people relations and public diplomacy between two very proximate countries such as Indonesia and Australia. But what is the state of Indonesia-Australia relations during these times of increasing international detachment and the defunding of public diplomacy programs? What are some of the contemporary challenges faced by those trying to foster public diplomacy programs between the two countries? To speak more about the history and current state of Indonesia-Australia people-to-people relations, I speak to Liz Kramer and Ellie Williams. Dr. Liz Kramer is Deputy Director at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre and Honorary Associate at the School of Languages and Culture at the University of Sydney. Her research looks at the intersection between discourse, identity and politics in Indonesia. Her current research interests include corruption, the tobacco industry, and political empowerment for people with disabilities. Elena Williams, also known as Ellie, is currently completing her PhD in the Department of Political and Social Change in the College of Asia-Pacific at the Australian National University. She examines the impact of DFED-funded scholarships on the Australia-Indonesia relationship in her thesis. Between 2013 to 2017, Ellie served as the resident director in Indonesia for the Australian Consortium for In-Country Indonesian Studies, or ACICIS, which facilitates undergraduate study abroad programs for Australian and other international students in Indonesia. So, Liz and Ellie, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, It seems like a really weird time to be talking about international relations and, you know, and bilateral engagements at a time when there's really no bilateral engagements or travel going on between Indonesia and Australia. But nevertheless, uh, perhaps that's why it highlights even more the importance of maintaining people to people relations uh, between Indonesia and Australia, especially at a time like this. Um, So thanks, guys, for joining me. And first of all, I may start uh, with a question for you, Ellie. I know your uh, PhD research as well that you're doing at the ANU about soft power relations between Indonesia and Australia. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of soft power relations between Indonesia and Australia and how far back does this relationship go? 
Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, so I think firstly, if we're looking at the concept of soft power, you know, this is a term that was initially coined by US political scientist Joseph Nye back in the late 1980s, but then really gained currency throughout the 90s and onwards. And it's, you know, it's really about the kind of the attraction of ideas and, and influence that states can have over other states. So to sort of co-opt as opposed to coerce. And it, you know, states will do this through their education institutions, their aid program, their volunteering programs, uh, through tourism, through arts exchanges, cultural exchanges, things like that. So, you know, Australia and Indonesia have a really rich history of, of doing, you know, soft power or people-to-people uh, -people diplomacy. Um, but, you know, it's, I almost find it's, a, it's quite a problematic term because when you look at soft, in inverted commas, power, it's instantly sort of set up in opposition to hard power. And, you know, what I guess is meant by hard power in that sense is, you know, governments, trade negotiations and economics and military dialogues and security negotiations. And, you know, as a, as a result, I think there is a tendency sometimes for soft power initiatives then to not be taken as seriously right. um, when compared with these, you know, hard, in inverted commas, uh, power negotiations as well. So I think that that can be quite problematic because, you know, it really does undermine the significance uh, of soft power itself and of some of these people-to-people uh, -people relationship building exercises. So that's, that's just a sort of overview. But yeah, I mean, to, to really look at, you know, the relationship between Indonesia and Australia, I mean, it's hard to pinpoint a starting point exactly. Um, there's such a long history. And certainly if we're just talking uh, about people-to-people -people relations more broadly, um, you know, obviously we go back centuries to uh, Makassan traders, you know, Bugis traders from South Sulawesi, uh, who were traveling down uh, to Arnhem Land to trade with Yongu people yep. in Trepang or sea cucumber, you know, a very long history of trade there. And the linguistic and, um, you know, cultural exchanges that began way back then, but of course, more recently, you know, I think the book that we're discussing today as well, you know, Charlotte's book is a great starting place for that in terms of looking at the, you know, the pro-independence movement that was happening uh, between 1945 and 1949 and Australia really offering support uh, to that independence movement for Indonesia. Um, and in fact, you know, helping to brokering, uh, helping to broker, sorry, the, the transfer of sovereignty from the Netherlands to Indonesia, which was formally acknowledged in 1949. So it does, it does go back a long way. It's really um, fascinating. A lot of people don't really know this history of um, Australia's involvement and also Australia's support for Indonesia's independence back in, you know, from 1945 until 1949, when the international community finally acknowledged Indonesia as an independent nation. People actually didn't know the people-to-people um, -people relations and also the grassroots support in uh, Australia supporting Indonesia's independence as well, especially because there were a lot of Indonesians um, at that time too that lived in Australia, uh, which is where I want to ask you a question, Liz. So, um, so the book by Charlotte Miramis uh, that, Ellie, uh, that Ellie mentioned before, Anton and Me, is a new book that uh, discusses essentially a love story, right, between Anton Maramis and Charlotte Maramis, an Indonesian sailor and an Australian woman at this time of uh, World War II and Indonesia's independence. Um, Liz, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about the story of Anton and Lottie uh, depicted in the in the in the book Anton and Me? Because I know you've read it. Yes, um, thanks, Charlotte. Of course. Um, Anton and Me was written, as you mentioned, by a Sydney woman, Charlotte Maramis, um, who, you know, her friends called Lati, and it was published posthumously earlier this year. 
Anna basically charts the early years of her relationship with her Indonesian husband, Anton, um, from their meeting in 1944 through to her moving to Jakarta in 1949 and then returning back to Australia in 1961. And it sort of starts with Lottie, well, the story of Lottie and Anton starts with a meeting in Sydney where he was living for a period in his capacity as a petty officer for the Netherlands East Indies shipping line. And Anton was also a nationalist who would later start working for the new Indonesian government after the war. Lottie was 17 when she met Anton and, and they fell in love uh, and got married a, a few years later, right. a few years after they met. Well, I won't go into too many details because I hope people will read the book and <laughs> discover more about the story themselves. But I think it's important to note that the book, it, it is a love story, but it's actually, I think, a lot more than that. It's a really personal account of what it was like um, for Indonesians who were in Australia during that World War II period and um, what it was like in Indonesia in those really early days of the Republic and Lottie's experiences as an outsider who moved to Indonesia and, you know, was really sort of warmly welcomed by people over there. I'm, I'm curious, Liz, in your opinion, um, why, you know, why, why is the story of Anton and Lottie so uh, fascinating? And also, what does it tell us about the history and importance of Australia-Indonesia relations here? Yeah, that's a really interesting question, Charlotte. And I think you're right to sort of talk about it as a very personal memoir, but also, you know, it, it brings up a lot of issues and a lot of, you know, we can glean a lot about the Australia-Indonesia relationship through Lottie's story. And I think for me personally, there were two key highlights, I guess, about this relationship that I took away from the book. Um, the first one is the history of the Australia-Indonesia Association, which was um, formed in 1945 and, uh, as you mentioned earlier, was um, the publisher for this book. Um, it's the AIA's 75th anniversary this year, so, so wow. they've been going strong for a while. And, um, you know, I think it's worth mentioning that the AIA, um, you know, has been continuing to lobby um, particularly in New South Wales, the state government to promote Indonesian studies and Indonesian language in primary schools and high schools, and really, you know, trying to bring the to raise government awareness about the need to to teach young people about Indonesia. Um, you know, our very close neighbour, and you know, we've got this long history with them. So, so they've been working really hard to do that. And if you go back to Lottie and Anton's story, they essentially met through the ties that led to the establishment of the Australia Indonesia Association back in 1945. So it clearly played a, a pivotal role in their lives. And, you know, more than that, it really highlights the importance of community groups in keeping links alive and demonstrate and demonstrates that, you know, there are really long lasting personal relationships that can come out of being involved with a group like the Australia Indonesia Association. So, so I think that's the first point for me. The second point um, sort of relates to the early history of independent Indonesia and Australia's response to that. 
Uh, I think in, in Lottie's telling, it's quite interesting to hear about the controversies that were around at that time. Um, you know, especially now since, since you and Ellie have talked about, um, you know, the narrative of Australia's um, support for Indonesia in those early years. Um, you know, there's been a big focus on the Black Armada and the role of unions in boycotting Dutch ships and ships that were um, headed to Indonesia to provide supplies to the Dutch forces at that time, yeah. which has been highlighted, you know, in the Black Armada documentary and the exhibition that was shown in Australia and Indonesia. And, you know, that's a really important piece of history that Australians can point to and proudly say that there was public support for the New Republic. But, you know, at the same time, Lottie's story points to another side of this coin in some ways in terms of some of the official ambivalence that was around um, surrounding European colonialism in right. Asia, yeah. um, suspicions of communism, and then even, you know, the latent racism of Australian society at that time. Because, you know, even though Lottie and Anton had a lot of support from their family and friends, there was another opinion that was quite prevalent at that time that, you know, held that their relationship was actually socially unacceptable yeah. so she was sort of you know uh, going against that and you can sort of see that through her story as well Ellie, um, I want to go uh, back to you before and picking up on the point that Liz made about the importance of um, associations and organizations such as the Australia-Indonesia Indonesia Association in forging ties between the two countries. Um, so you mentioned AIA before. From your knowledge, um, can you think of other big milestones and programs that have been launched in recent history um, to increase soft power relations? I know that term is loaded, right? But um, to um, encourage cultural exchange and people-to-people -people exchange between Indonesia and Australia. Yeah, definitely. I think it's really important to, you know, Liz raised that point before about Charlotte and Anton's relationship happening against this uh, unusual backdrop. You know, their their relationship was something different for the time uh, with, you know, social norms and, and values. And this was happening at the time of the white Australia policy as well. And I think it's interesting, you know, it's quite remarkable really to think then at the same time, you know, in the early 1950s, when the original Colombo Plan scholarship program was launched, this was also happening against, you know, that backdrop as well in Australia. So this was a program that was launched, you know, after a Commonwealth Minister's meeting in Colombo in, you know, Sri Lanka, right. hence the name. Um, you know, this, what came out of it was, okay, we need to find a way to uh, help build up capacity and skills development among young Asian scholars who can then, you know, study in Commonwealth institutions and then go back to their home countries and contribute to these newly democratised uh, governments. Now, Indonesia, of course, sent many, uh, you know, many students to Australia through this program, um, you know, thousands of students through this program. And it was really influential in, you know, you had host families hosting Indonesians against this, you know, difficult backdrop, as, as Liz described before. Um, but, you know, many of these Indonesians also then returned to Indonesia uh, and then actually came back to Australia later, um, you know, as skilled migrants. And so, you know, that became part of Australia's multicultural history as well. Yeah. So that would be, you know, an important, I think that's an important chapter in Australia's history as well. Um, you know, looking as well at other organisations, I think you can hardly look at the Australia-Indonesia relationship now uh, without looking at the work that, you know, the Australia-Indonesia Institute does, uh, which is funded, of course, by the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, DFAT. Uh, so programs through 
the AII that are funded, you know, the Australia Indonesia Youth Exchange Program, which runs every year for, you know, 36 young people to get to know each other in Australia and Indonesia, uh, to really work on cultural programs together, development programs. Uh, you also have the Bridge Program, which you know helps teachers and schools and students to connect with each other between Australia and Indonesia. Uh, the Muslim Exchange Program, which connects young uh, Muslim leaders from Australia and Indonesia with each other. And then also the Senior Editors uh, Program each year, uh, which obviously helps to connect media leaders with each other and to, to shape opinions there. And I suppose to you know provide more nuance in the media landscape, which is really important as well. Um, you know, there are many organisations as well. It would be remiss of me not to include, of course, the Australian Consortium for In-Country Indonesian Studies That's right, or yeah. ACHIPIS. It's a total mouthful, so apologies to your listeners. Um, but ACHIPIS essentially is a consortium of universities from Australia and abroad uh, with 25 member universities which was really, it was formed in 94 and then uh, based in Indonesia from 1995. Uh, and since then has actually, you know, there's about three and a half thousand alumni of the program. Um, they have around 15 or 16 programs running today. Uh, and it's grown significantly in recent years, particularly because of, uh, you know, government funding that's come around through what's now known as the new Colombo plan, uh, which is a scholarship scheme which effectively inverts the old Colombo plan. So what we have is we now see, you know, thousands of young Australian students actually going out to the Indo-Pacific region and studying and interning uh, and living there and then actually returning to Australia with that knowledge. And Indonesia has been a priority country uh, in the New Colombo Plan since its beginnings in, 2000, in 2014. So yeah, so I would say that there's some of the organisations on the Australian side. Uh, certainly on the Indonesian side, you know, less money has been poured into soft diplomacy or people-to-people -people, uh, relationships. And I think simply that was a matter of prioritising at the beginning, you know, prioritising a, a domestic and and local economy first. Um, but you do, of course, have the long-running uh, Dharma Siswa Scholarship Program, uh, which is open to international students from all around the world to basically study at an Indonesian university, uh, to study Indonesian language, culture, politics, uh, and then return home. And of course, there have been Australian students that have studied through that. Um, but it is quite difficult in that it's, you know, it has very modest funding uh, and it, it doesn't really align with the Australian university calendar because of you know Indonesian semesters being more closely aligned uh, with Northern Hemisphere. So you tend to get a lot more European students through that. Right. Okay. Thank you so much, Ellie, for that. That's really extensive, and and uh, there's tons of different initiatives uh, that you know are obviously uh, helping to bridge people to people relations between the two countries. I want to follow up with you on the new Colombo plan. Um, I, I don't know whether you know very much about this, uh, and and certainly I, I'm sure people have heard of it, but they probably don't know very much about about the program itself. So it's interesting for me that now we we the, the program itself was designed, as you say, to reverse the kind of Colombo program in 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 some ways, right? To to bring more um, students from Australia to Asian countries. What was behind uh, the need uh, for this? Was it the was it um, thought about as you know Australian students actually not engaging enough with Asia do we um, do Australians not know enough about the region um, that that they're in many ways part of do you know very much about the motivations behind this new Colombo plan 
So, yeah, so thanks for that, Charlotte. And it's it's certainly an interesting question and something that I'm actually looking at in my PhD research. So when we start thinking about this, you know, the, the New Colombo Plan, uh, this was an initiative that was designed by former Foreign Minister Julie Bishop, um, you know, designed in 2013, launched in different countries, you know, four pilot countries in 2014, and Indonesia was included among those pilot countries to begin with. And really, you know, it, it came about as a way of, you know, the New Colombo Plan's stated goals on their website are to lift knowledge of the Indo-Pacific among young Australian students. So the idea was, you know, students would go, they would, they would have experiences, um, you know, short tours from two weeks to four weeks to six week internships to full semesters, right up to long, you know, mentorships that would last 18 months, really immersive experiences in country. Uh, and then they would get credit towards their degree. So there are two streams in the New Colombo Plan. One is what's called uh, a mobility grant stream. Uh, and this is where universities apply for funding to send their students up on you know, tours and short programs, as I mentioned. And then there's the scholarship stream, uh, which is a much larger pot of money uh, and was really sort of designed to attract the kind of best and brightest in inverted commas, um, you know, a Rhodes scholarship kind of approach for the region. Um, and that's, you know, that's a, a larger allocation of money and it, it has a big launch every year. Um, so there's 40 countries that are included in the New Colombo Plan now and it has expanded to the Pacific as well. You look at the NCP now and, you know, you can't deny that it has been an absolute game changer, um, not just for student mobility uh, abroad, you know, for outbound student mobility, but also for, you know, Australian students having the chance to get to know Indonesia. It definitely has. But there are problems with it and there are challenges with it in terms of the way that it's embedded into university degrees, in terms of the ways that students come back. Uh, you know, they come back and often don't have any Indonesian or Asian studies uh, electives left in their degree. Right. They have difficulty, you know, university departments have difficulty getting funding to send their students through. So it's really not embedded uh, well enough. Um, and I think also that, you know, there's a lot of talk from the business community about hiring students and, you know, wanting graduates who are Asia ready and Asia literate and have these kind of Indonesian literacy skills. But we're really yet to see from the business community um, an actual kind of practical response to that. So where are the selection criteria, for example, in, in job descriptions, specifically asking for Indonesian language skills or Indonesian, right. you know, country experience. We're not seeing that yet. Okay. So I think there are issues with the way that it's actually being embedded more broadly uh, into universities and, and Australian society more broadly. I know that you've had, um, I'm, I'm not sure whether the programs that you've run in the past uh, have any direct links with NCP, but I know that you've taken groups of students to Indonesia for in-country studies. Um, I was wondering whether you can tell me a little bit about some of the challenges that you faced in organizing these kind of uh, study trips and also for internet, uh, Australian students uh, who want to engage more with Indonesia and also perhaps vice versa, if you have uh, any knowledge of that. What are some of the institutional or bureaucratic challenges faced here in actually wanting to implement um, education, in-country education programs that foster mutual knowledge of both countries? I have run um, both uh, New Colombo plan funded programs and um, programs funded by the University of Sydney as well. So I've got, you know, a broad range of experience with that. But I want to take a step back and go address your question about challenges first. Mm -hmm. um, I think from, from my perspective, at least, probably the biggest challenge that we face, unfortunately, is that, you know, out of our cohort of university students, 
there's only a very small percentage that have an inherent interest in learning about Indonesia. Interesting. So, you know, if you look at the statistics for student mobility from the University of Sydney, at least, um, the most popular destinations for overseas travel are Europe and North America. Mm. And, you know, a lot of students, um, you know, sort of covet those experiences, you know, for a particular set of reasons and and studying in Southeast Asia or Indonesia more specifically is perhaps not at the forefront of their minds. So we need to, when, when we propose our programs and when we shape our programs, we need to really think about how we're going to appeal to students who aren't already interested in Indonesia because, you know, the students who are studying Indonesian language, um, you know, they're, they're a captured market. They're probably already thinking about their exchange experience in Indonesia or, you know, traveling there, but right. most students aren't. Um, so, you know, there have been a lot of efforts to counter this and there have been some fabulous opportunities offered by um, a teachers, uh, as Ellie mentioned, and the funding that's been uh, provided through the new Colombo plan has, has certainly made... I think traveling to Indonesia more appealing for some students, but I, I wouldn't necessarily say that it's all about the money. I think a lot of it is just about awareness raising and creating programs that students are going to be interested in, regardless of whether they have a natural affinity with Indonesia or not. Here at the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre where I work, um, we've been working off a model which we call interdisciplinary field schools, which are thematically shaped. And, and I know Achichis has um, similar programs as well, where we focus on a particular topic or a particular subject. So, for example, here we've run successful programs looking at issues of women's empowerment in Indonesia and also disability and social inclusion in Indonesia. Right. And, you know, there are students across a broad range of subjects and departments um, at the university who are going to have an interest in women's empowerment, but not necessarily in Indonesia. Right. So you, you sort of pitch the program as one where they can learn more about that particular topic in Indonesia. And then once you get there, you can start, you know, introducing them to different facets of Indonesian life and society. And our programs usually involve partnership with the host university. So they um, they end up doing group projects with um, their peers who are Indonesian students. And through that experience, they actually become more attuned to you know, what's going on in Indonesia, they become more interested. We've had a lot of students who've done our programs who've come into them and haven't actually studied any Indonesian language or ever done um, a course related to Indonesia. And they've actually ended up switching their majors or, you know, deliberately choosing uh, subjects that have more of an Indonesia Fantastic. focus, which yeah. is really great. From your um, experience, has there been much, uh, I know Ellie before talked about some of the efforts from the Australian side in having programs in Indonesia. How about from the Indonesian government side? Has it, have they made it easy, for instance, um, for uh, programs such as ones from Australia to, uh, that, that, that are designed to encourage cultural diplomacy and people-to-people -people relations? 
you know, Ellie probably has a little bit more experience with this in terms of getting students to Indonesia. But I think, you know, broadly speaking in the academic community, there are, you know, people are watching very carefully what's happening with um, research permits in Indonesia at the moment, um, how the government is sort of putting uh, limitations on what people can research once they get to Indonesia and the nature of their collaborations with um, uh, with tertiary uh, institutions in Indonesia and people who work there. Uh, I think that's probably something that um, is a little bit concerning at times, um, but you know, that's that's a story that's still being written. So yeah. um, from, a, from a researcher perspective, it's just something to keep an eye on at the moment. And, and especially given that, you know, we're in a COVID-19 pandemic state and people aren't really um, traveling overseas um, at the moment, it's not that much of an issue right now. But I think right. once that movement opens up again, it'll be something to keep an eye on. Right. Okay. I do want to ask about, uh, especially now, it's impossible not to put it in context of COVID-19 and what's been happening. Um, And not only from the perspective of uh, uh, restrictions in place uh, with the movement of people, obviously people now can't uh, travel between Indonesia and Australia, at least not until the, uh, you know, uh, uh, in the foreseeable few months, hopefully that will change soon. Um, But uh, also in the defunding of programs uh, and because the money is needed elsewhere for, you know, COVID measures and all that. um, In your opinion, and I'm going to go to both of you on this, what do you think are some of the challenges faced today in Australia, Indonesia, people to people relations, particularly in the context of the COVID pandemic? And Ellie, I'd like to go to you first uh, about this, because I know you have direct experiences with Achichis, right? Yeah, so I think there are certainly lots of challenges. And just to pick up on Liz's point before, um, you know, it's not only the the difficulties in obtaining uh, research permits, you know, for academics, but also the issue of visas for students. Um, that's an issue as well that we constantly face at Achichis. I mean, it is doable. It's challenging, but doable. And that's really about having, you know, years of relationships with uh, government officials that, you know, Achichis staff have built up over the over many, many years, you know, 25 years in country. But I think, you know, visas is, is not the only challenge. I think certainly it's no... I don't think it's any surprise that over the years, when you look at the numbers, uh, you know, the drops in Achichis student numbers, and the drops in... Um, students studying in Indonesia more broadly, um, and also the decline in Indonesian language learning in Australia, yeah. these these numbers, you know, the, these sort of steep declines also happened around kind of key events in the relationship. So whether that was, you know, of course, the Bali bombing, uh, whether that was, you know, the other, the Marriott bombings and the embassy bombings that happened in Jakarta in 2004, 2009, whether it was also the issues around people smuggling or, you know, what was termed in the media for a long time there as beef boats and Bali was the only coverage of, of Indonesia in Australian media, I really do think that the, you know, the media has a, a big role to play in determining that narrative. Liz, what about from your point of view? I know that uh, you, know, you regularly uh, look at uh, the logistics and also plan for these kind of programs. Uh, what do you see are some of the challenges uh, faced specifically to do with the COVID-19 pandemic uh, from your point of view here? You know, Ellie has talked about some wonderful examples of organisations that have been very nimble and have been able to sort of pivot to capitalise on the technology that's available and use that technology to keep programs 
going and to, you know, keep the engagement up uh, in a time when, you know, it might be quite easy to give up. And But, you know, I think that also sort of underlines one of the dangers here where, you know, for people who are already interested in Indonesia, um, you know, they're, they're probably going to be driven to keep these relationships up virtually and mm. to, to use the technology that's available to do that. But I, I do wonder whether there is a danger of, you know, losing the rest of the population in this, that, you right. know, without being able to travel, um, without being able to, you know, take a holiday in Indonesia or, or go and study there physically, that that they might just kind of, you know, not be that compelled to to keep learning about Indonesia or to keep trying to understand what's happening over there. So, I mean, I think that is a danger with the Australia-Indonesia relationship as with any other international relationship that Australia has um, in the pandemic time. Thank you very much, uh, guys, for this conversation today. Uh, and I think, um, if anything, the story of Anton and Charlotte Maramis, as in the book um, uh, Anton and Me, that's been published by Australia Indonesia Association, reminds us about the importance of people to people relation, bilateral relations uh, between Australia and Indonesia at a time of crisis. Um, and hopefully, people don't uh, lose faith in people-to-people -people engagement and continues like in, in the initiatives that you were talking about before. Ellie Williams and Liz Kramer, thank you so much for your time today and chatting with me. Um, and hopefully I get to see you both before too long. <laughs> yes, Thanks, Jade. Charlotte. Hopefully. Talking Indonesia will return on the 24th of September. Remember, you can find the entire Talking Indonesia podcast archive at the Indonesia at Melbourne blog, subscribe via iTunes so you'll never miss an episode, or find us via your favorite podcasting app. Until next time, this has been the Talking Indonesia podcast. Bye for now.